Good morning. Hope you got your Bible with you. And if you do, let's go ahead and open it up to Genesis chapter 50. Now, Genesis chapter 50 puts us at the end of the book of Genesis and also at the end of a, what is a, a pretty well-known story. Um, matter of fact, it may very well be that uh, uh, if you're if you've ever seen any of Andrew Lloyd Webber's works, you may have come across Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, well, the story of Joseph is probably not quite as musical and uplifting in so many ways as the musical was, but, um, but the story of Joseph and his brothers is something that we find in history here. Scripturally, we read the, the details about it, but Joseph becomes the prominent brother among his brothers. Well, that story begins much earlier and just we won't go into the whole story, but just to get us to where we are today in, in our passage. Uh, Joseph um, is Jacob's favorite son, and he treats him with great favor, and this becomes a point of real envy and contention among the other brothers. Well, Joseph also now, from the Lord, begins to get a series of dreams that imply that there's a day coming when his brothers will bow down to him. You can imagine how much that ingratiated him to them. Uh, as a matter of fact, at one point, um, the sun, moon, and 11 stars in one of his visions, uh, one of his dreams, um, uh, begins to not only uh, spark their ire, but even uh, J Joseph's own father, Jacob, recognizing uh, the stars as being his brothers and the sun and moon being uh, himself and his wife, Joseph's parents, his mom and dad. And he says, well, will your mother and I, and your, will we bow down to you as well in all of this? That, by the way, becomes instructive in understanding um, uh, the vision of the woman in Revelation as well. But uh, that's a study for another time. Now, um, Joseph's brothers uh, finally have had enough of this. And so they decide to kill the dreamer. And so they throw him into a pit. Now you can imagine, uh, and this becomes instructive for us as we move into our passage today, uh, their hatred for him is so deep that they're actually desiring to kill him. Uh, imagine Joseph uh, being thrown into a pit by his brothers and hearing them plot his demise and then hearing them go off. And uh, Reuben comes back later and instead of selling, uh, instead of killing him, decides, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, they uh, decide instead of killing him, they should sell him into slavery. Uh, and so as they sell him into slavery, there goes Joseph chained, being dragged away from his family with his brothers watching on. And you can imagine emotionally like what that must do to somebody to realize your family you've grown up with hates you so much that they are actually selling you off into slavery. And so there he goes. And that begins this journey for him, uh, a journey of tremendous difficulty, tremendous uh, toil, tremendous mental anxiety, and just as he sorts these things out. But God is there with him throughout. And so at various points, Joseph finds favor with the leader of the various places he's in, whether it's the, uh, the one managing the prison, whether it becomes Potiphar, whether it becomes Pharaoh later on. Um, he uh, ultimately becomes an interpreter of dreams for these folks and, and for others among him. And so he begins to gain some notoriety. Well, God is using that to ultimately place him in a position where <clears throat> when the time comes, when God is going to bring famines uh, and such onto the land, that through Joseph, God helps his most current boss, Pharaoh, to plan so that Egypt can be ready 
for what's coming and that they can ultimately um, be prepared. Well, this all comes to pass and Joseph becomes second only to Pharaoh because of the, the favor that God has shown him and it becomes evident to all. Well, the time comes where Joseph's brothers uh, come to Egypt to get food. Now they think that Joseph is long dead, long gone from now. Uh, certainly, the, or at least so far out of the picture that he's not even on their minds. And so they come to Egypt to get food. And again, the story is wonderful. You should read it. It's uh, Genesis 38 to 50. Um, but go ahead and read that. But just summarizing again, they come to him and, and they don't realize it's him. As they come before him, he works out a series of events to really bring them to a place of of, of, of recognition of their past sins, of, of, of recognizing that God, making them feel as though God is gonna judge them now for what they've done earlier. And all this time, he's, he's inwardly, he's, he's testing them. And then ultimately when he recognizes, uh, again, boy, I wish I could tell you the whole story, but they come with their youngest brother, Benjamin. And when Joseph sees Benjamin, he can't even help himself. He goes and runs off and, and, and weeps. And, and he sees the brokenness of his brothers as, they, um, as they, they find themselves forced to have to bring their youngest brother, who they're afraid will be taken away from them by this, this, this master who's overseeing the food that is actually Joseph that they don't recognize. And um, so finally, Joseph makes himself known to them. And they're shocked and they, they, you know, Joseph embraces them, feeds them, welcomes them, brings Jacob, his father, and their family all to there. And then eventually over time, as they begin to settle into the land of Goshen there around Egypt, where they just kind of their place to be, eventually Jacob dies and the brothers are left. And at this point they feel, oh my gosh, now that Joseph's, now that our father is gone, Joseph's going to take his vengeance on us. Uh, forgive me for the brief non-complete telling of that whole story, but let me really again commend you to read it. But here's where we find ourselves today in Genesis 50, where the brothers are now terrified for their lives, thinking that Joseph is now going to exact justice upon them for the way they treated him so many years earlier. Now he has all this authority and power, and he literally can snap his fingers and they can be dead. And they're terrified of this. And so here's where we find ourselves in verse uh, 20. In fact, in verse 19, they fell down before him in verse 18, and they're crying out, we're your servants, behold, we're your servants. And Joseph in verse 19 said to them, do not fear, for I am, in the place, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And here's the, here's the passage. As for you, you meant this to be evil for me but God meant it for good. Now think about everything Joseph had gone through. Uh, all the suffering, the separation from family, the, the constantly getting uh, accused and moved from uh, and thrown in prison, and then God gives him favor. He moves into another position, uh, and then God gives him favor. And then he, then he finds himself, um, uh, in, the, in the one instance, Potiphar's wife is hitting on him, and he's in this position of authority. And Potiphar's wife wrongfully accuses him of rape or attempted rape, and so he's thrown into prison again. Uh, all of these things, this, this 
up and down circumstance of favor with God and then being thrown into a terrible circumstance until finally he finds himself in this place where he can be sort of a savior to the Egyptian people, to those nations around who needed food. God elevates him to a position in this way. As a matter of fact, Joseph in many ways is a type of Christ. Again, another study. But, um, but all of those circumstances and in all of those opportunities that Joseph could easily have just thrown in the towel and said, God, you know, you gave me visions before. I believed you were going to do something, but here I am in prison. Uh, here I am trying to just be a good steward of that which you've given me to do, serving my master, and his wife hits on me, and I ultimately go to jail. All these things. Uh, I interpret dreams for the, the, the bread maker and the wine cup bearer and that, and then they forget about me. And so it's just all of these things where most of us, most ordinary common people, would in those circumstances have given up and said, God, you're not faithful, okay? I'm walking with you. I'm trying to honor you, but you keep messing me over. You keep allowing circumstances to come down on me that, <clears throat> that are like my ruin. <clears throat> most of us at some point or another find ourselves in circumstances like that. What do we do? How should we view those things? Well, I think Joseph's... <clears throat> analysis of all of those things as he comes now to that place of, of, of reckoning with his brothers and rather than judge them and, and, and bring harm to them for what they did to him. And what they did to him was evil and horrible, uh, worst kinds of things, selling your brother into slavery. But nonetheless, <clears throat> Joseph sees that as on, on the one hand, yes, they, they meant to hurt him. They meant to send him away. They, they meant it for evil for him. <clears throat> but ultimately, God was overarching in this whole thing. God ultimately was doing something good through it. And not just kind of good. He was working out a tremendous good. Many were kept alive as a result of what happened. Uh, and so Joseph sees that. He recognizes now on this side of things, having learned all the lessons that, were, that came with all of the different circumstances he found himself in, he now finds himself wiser and ready to see it more clearly for what it is. And there is so much there to, for us to think about. Uh, our knee-jerk reaction to our circumstances often is to question God and to question his faithfulness or those kinds of things. And that's natural for us. And thankfully, God knows our frame. Uh, Psalm 103 tells us how God knows our frame, that we're dust. He understands. He's not threatened by our sense of, of questioning in that. But as we grow in wisdom and experience walking with God, we become more adept at understanding that God is actually working things together for an ultimate good and for his glory, even in the seemingly worst circumstances. Uh, think of somebody like Paul. I always like to bring up Paul because we can so relate and, and, and learn from uh, him in so many ways. But Paul finds himself in, uh, in prison in Rome, and uh, this is going to ultimately lead to his death and martyrdom. But here in Rome, he writes a number of letters, uh, Philippians being one of them. And matter of fact, why don't we turn to Philippians chapter one. In Philippians chapter one, <clears throat> Paul in, in verse 12 says this. Uh, now again, remember, Paul's in prison here. He's in a Roman prison as he's writing this letter. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This is in verse 12 into 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
And we go on to say how some would preach it with good uh, intentions, some with bad, but at least Christ is being preached. Well, Paul finds himself in prison, but he recognizes that his circumstances actually are working for the furtherance of the gospel. Uh, Not only for the furtherance of the gospel personally, but even among the brothers who are also in prison or other brothers who are aware of him being in prison. Uh, Other believers who, and sisters, by the way, too, not just the, the men, but believers were were recognizing Paul's situation and that he was standing firm for the gospel. He was still proclaiming Christ even in chains, uh, as he would later refer to himself as an ambassador in chains. And they were encouraged by this, and it emboldened them to go on and preach the gospel without the fear of repercussion from the government or from other people in that. And so his imprisonment went to furthering the gospel personally, but it also emboldened other believers to go and preach the gospel as well. As a matter of fact, some of the outworking of Paul's imprisonment resulted in the saving of a number of uh, those uh, uh, centurions in Caesar's household, and, and not even necessarily just centurions, but servants in Caesar's household. At the end of Philippians, he uh, says that, hey, this, these number of people greet you, including some from Caesar's household. Well, Paul might not have ever had the opportunity to reach those people had he not been in prison. Or what about, you know, he's writing to the Philippians here. Well, the Philippians remember well when Paul in Acts 16, when he came to visit them and plant that church, <clears throat> how he ultimately goes to prison with Silas. Uh, they, they ultimately get thrown in prison, and there is a Philippian jailer there who's overseeing this prison. Well, one night around midnight, uh, Paul and Silas are praying and worshiping, and an earthquake happens, and the doors all to, to all the prison, door, uh, uh, prison cells opens. <clears throat> and the guard thinks everyone's going to escape and I'm going to be left being responsible for all of these escaped prisoners. So he takes out his sword and he's about to kill himself when Paul and Silas cry out and say, stop, we're all still here. And he is so stunned by this that they actually end up having an opportunity to share the gospel with him. And ultimately he and his whole household become believers as a result of this. Paul and Silas are in prison and they're singing hymns and they're worshiping God and they're praying. Their circumstance to them is not something that is stopping them from doing what God wants to do. It ultimately becomes the opportunity and environment in which God will be able to do what God wants to do. And they're willing servants in that purpose and plan. Now, the believer has the wonderful prerogative and opportunity and privilege really to choose to recognize our circumstances for what they actually are. And believe me, I'm not just talking about turning lemons into lemonade and just having a good positive attitude. Those are good things. It's good to be, have a positive attitude. But I'm not talking about something as comparatively small as just trying to get yourself into a place of having a good attitude. I'm talking about something far more deep and pervasive, something that actually allows us uh, going to a place where we recognize that our circumstances, all of them, are ultimately part of God's purpose in our lives, both to build us, but also to bring him glory. It ultimately serves for our good as he works within us. It works for others' good as they ultimately see a testimony lived out through us as we walk by faith. And then ultimately it brings God glory as well. Matter of fact, Paul in Romans 8.28, another passage that I encourage you to read, and not just the one verse, but read the entire context. On the one hand, all things, as the passage says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That verse by itself is extremely comforting because it reminds us that everything is ultimately working for our good 
because it is coming ultimately through the filter of God's purpose and divine plans for us. Um, But the overall scope of the passage has to do with our ultimate good in the sense that he ultimately is working all things together for that final ultimate good uh, where we stand glorified in his sight. As a matter of fact, in that passage, we see what is often called the the, uh, the golden chain of redemption that starts with um, God's uh, you know uh, foreknowledge and predestination all the way through to glorification of those whom He calls uh, and He ultimately justifies. And so this becomes uh, this passage, Romans eight twenty eight, becomes just one place or one small part, I should say, of a larger good that God is ultimately working out. And when we begin to think in those terms that God is working all things together for our good and our ultimate good, that begins to help us to have a proper perspective. We're not just trying to keep a stiff upper lip in spite of circumstances and in spite of, uh, you know, we're, we're just trying to believe God has something good in this. No, we can know it. For we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, who love God are called according to his purpose. We know, not we wonder if, or we hope so, we know the Christian can have assurance of God's purposes and plans. Uh, and therefore, that changes the way we view them. Again, what the world might mean for evil or what someone in the workplace might mean for evil or what somebody on the team might mean for, mean for evil or somebody in your family that uh, is sick of you as a believer means for evil to try and undermine you in some way. God is ultimately working out for good and he's going to accomplish his purposes. Um, In terms of our own, uh, what this means for us individually, remember that our our lives are his now as believers. You know, uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, the life I live in the flesh and the body, I now live for him, as Paul would describe. And so this becomes our opportunity to give God the freedom in our lives to do what he's going to do. Now, God will work things out in our lives for our good because he is good, even in spite of our questioning or resistance, he still wants to work those things out for us and in us. Um, matter of fact, my wife would often say, you know, you're, you learn things the easy way or the hard way, but you're going to learn them. And that's, that found that to bear itself out pretty, pretty frequently. And so, um, but wisdom, as we grow in wisdom, it becomes more learning it the easy way than the hard way. We don't resist, but we allow God that place. Um, I can't help but think of Jeremiah and the, the, the clay on the wheel and that and how God fashions this as he's working and molding, uh, well, as the potter, you know, of course, it's, it's symbolic of God working uh, in the nation and then uh, in Israel. But we can certainly glean from this personally where God is taking this lump of clay and as he's working it or as the potter's working it, he comes to a point on the wheel there where he's masterfully making this thing. But it turns out there's a blemish in it and so he crushes it down and he starts over. Well, there's something about that that, that we can certainly lean, uh, glean from and learn from. Um, that God is working in our lives in a way where he's molding us into something beautiful. Paul would call it like a vessel of honor, fit for the master's use. And as he ultimately molds us and makes us, there are times when he kind of crushes us back down and brings us down to that beginning point and, and molds us once again, uh, reworks us into something that ultimately is beautiful and fit for his use. Well, if the clay could talk, that crushing probably doesn't feel good. But at the end of it, when all of a sudden that final piece is done, it's beautiful, it ends up sitting in a place of honor, or it gets used every day, Uh, it becomes something beautiful. But it takes the potter's skillful hands 
and his recognition of when it needs to be reworked, when it needs to be brought back down, and, and, and when it's actually finished. And so we submit to that, recognizing that the master potter, the master builder, the master workman, has ultimately got his hands on our lives, and therefore he's working skillfully to build in us those things that he desires to. And so when you find yourself in a circumstance that is difficult and that you don't understand, fall back on what you do understand. You know, we, we've come to know that God is not only skillful, that God can not only work things in ways that we would never have imagined. Chances are you've seen that in your life. I've seen it in mine for sure. Um, but we know he's not only skillful, but we know that he's also wise. He knows the things that need to happen. When we've gone through, and I've shared in the past of our own hardships when we moved from Illinois to Tennessee, um, you know, in the midst of those things, it didn't seem to make any sense. It seemed like God was clearly leading, and all of a sudden it seemed like we had made a mistake. Well, we hadn't made a mistake, but we just found ourselves in a time where God was testing us and building us and teaching us lessons that we would not have been able to learn any other way. And so we, we came to realize very practically that God is wise to have brought us through what he did to bring us to where he ultimately was going to. And not only is he skillful and not only is he wise, but he's ultimately good. And his love never fails. His love never fades or diminishes toward us. And his goodness never changes. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. I change not, says the Lord. And so we never have to wonder if God sort of changed all of a sudden. Now he's not kind. Now he's not gracious. Now he doesn't love us anymore. That never changes. And so when we see things through the, that grid of understanding the nature of God, it helps us to understand our circumstances and endure them and maybe even grow through them in ways that are helpful and profitable. And again, not only for us, but even for those who see us as we go through it. Uh, their faith might be strengthened or their unbelief might become belief as they realize the reality of God working in our lives. And then ultimately, and this is the main reason why we go through things that we do, is that we might glorify him, that we might direct people to him, that people might see what we endure and ultimately see him as the great and awesome and good and loving and saving God that he is. And, um, and so just some things to think about. Again, oftentimes we take on topics that are much broader than a 20-minute podcast can really do justice to. But my hope is that it prods enough thought and certainly a time of prayer where you seek the Lord about your circumstances if you're going through a difficult one and to seek him out and to ask him to help you to understand and if not understand, to grow. And oftentimes we don't understand. Oftentimes we just learn and grow through it, but we don't recognize it till later. Uh, a great, great pastor who's gone to be with the Lord, um, someone I really, really admired and, 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 and referred to often and read many of his books, uh, Warren Wearsby, once said that, you know, we don't, we don't, we're not called to necessarily live on explanations, but we are called to live on promises. Now, the Bible does explain a lot of things, but at the end of the day, we're in a relationship with God, and in a relationship, sometimes we don't always understand what the other person is doing. But if we know their character and nature, we trust them. The same Warren Wearsby, and I'll end with this story. He, um, he talked about uh, a woman who had come to him one day, going through a really, really difficult trial. And like any pastor, done this myself, your pastor has done this too, as, as somebody comes 
to them with a to us with a hard, difficult thing, our natural tendency is to say, "Well, let me pray that God brings you out of this. Let me pray that this trial would end for you and you'd experience God's peace, or you know something to that effect." We, we, we in our minds, we think that's the right thing. And Warren Wiersbe said the same thing. He said to her, "Well, let me pray that God would deliver you from this." And and she said, "Oh, I I appreciate that. I'm glad that you're praying for that for me. But also, and more importantly." Pray that I would learn what it is God is trying to teach me through it. Now, that's a very wise woman. That is a woman who has learned uh, what it means to walk with God and what it means to learn the lessons that God wants us to learn. And let me encourage you in that way as well. Don't be thrown down by your circumstances. Don't be thrown off track. Don't begin to question God, but rather judge your circumstances by what you know about God. And it'll help you understand that there's something at work here. There's something that God is doing. We might be prone to waste a lot of time in our lives with things, with lots of distractions and going off in different directions. But you know something? God doesn't waste a single second of your life. God is always at work in you, that he might work through you, and that he might be glorified in and through you as well. So that being said, let me pray. Hopefully, again, that's something for us to think and pray about as we find ourselves in difficult times and circumstances. So let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are the consistent, always the same, never changing God. Help us to remember that when we find ourselves in really challenging, questionable circumstances. Uh, Father, sometimes we walk into circumstances that uh, we bring things upon ourselves. That is certainly true. But we thank you that uh, that you are a God who can redeem even the most Uh, destructive decisions. You're a God who can redeem and and turn us back and bring us back from even the most difficult uh, and costly uh, circumstances we bring ourselves to. But Father, we thank you that even when that's not the case, when we just find ourselves in circumstances that aren't really about because of our own doing, but we just find ourselves in a place where we searched our hearts, we know that we didn't do something to the best of our knowledge. We know like Job, you're not going to crush us for some secret sin. We just find ourselves in a place where we don't understand why this is happening to us or why we're here. Help us to not judge you by those circumstances, but rather to see those circumstances through the lens of what we do know about you, to recognize that your hand is at work, to recognize like the master potter, you're working the clay so that it becomes, that we become something beautiful, fit for honor and fit for the master's use. Uh, Father, help us not to turn from you in those circumstances, but rather to press further in to you in those times, that we might come to understand that you haven't changed, even if we don't understand the circumstances. To know that your love has not failed, even though we feel like somehow we're outside of that now. That you haven't become a different kind of a father, that you've remained the same. And you know above all things that sometimes we need to go through difficult things in order to grow. And so help us to see these things for what they are. And help us to remember, Lord, that you're a God who can even bring beauty out of the ashes. So, Father, we're never truly crushed entirely. Ultimately, though, just broken down to the point where you can ultimately build in us that which will bring you great glory. And that's our heart's desire, is that you would be glorified through our lives. Like Paul, we recognize that we're not our own anymore. You've saved us, and you've saved us from something, and you've saved us to something. And so we want to serve you and give you our lives and let you do what you will. Help us to walk by faith as we do. We love you, Lord, and we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as always, I encourage you to comment and interact if you like, if you're so inclined. I love to hear from you. And certainly, uh, my, my prayer will continue to be that lessons like this, and especially very personal kinds of lessons like this, 
will always help us to grow closer and closer to the Lord as we walk with him. So God bless you as you walk with him.